Church, it is so good to be able to stand here and look out and actually see a church. It's good to, so good to be gathered again in, in person, isn't it? I mean, the, the past couple of weeks we've had a, a small congregation here, which has certainly been good. It's been far better than just preaching to an empty room or, or just you know, looking straight down a camera. But even having a few people here has has kind of emphasised the, the reality of all those who aren't here and who have still not been able to be gathered. So for us today, to be basically the whole church gathered together again today, it's a, it's a good thing. And to be here as one of your pastors, to preach the word to you in person, face to face, is a good thing. Um, we are blessed in this day and age with our ability to access teaching from... You know, really world-class preachers uh, from all over the world. You can subscribe to podcasts, you can listen, you know, visit websites, you can buy DVDs, and you can hear the likes of you know, Beth Moore, Matt Chandler, John Piper, Brian Houston, whoever it might be for, for you. But as good as their teaching might be, none of them actually know you. And if you do know them, let us know, because we maybe use that connection and get them to preach here sometime. But, but none, of you, none of you know them, and more significantly, none of them know you. None of them are your pastor. None of them have the responsibility to care for and to shepherd you. That's something that David and I have. And so, as I think about this, one of the things I've realized um, over time is that I don't enjoy being a visiting speaker at other churches. In my sinful pride, I thought I'd love it. Uh, I thought I'd love, you know, getting invites to go here, there, to be, and to be known and to be in demand, if you like. But each time I do it, I realize again, actually, I don't enjoy this. I mean, no one laughs at my jokes for a start, <laughs> so that's a problem. But, but fundamentally, I don't know then the people who I'm talking to. I don't know their situations, their struggles, their, their lives. And they don't know me at all either. I mean, I still believe they benefit from my preaching because it's, it's God's word that's being spoken to them. Just like we can benefit from listening to all these you know, preachers that we subscribe to. But it comes divorced from relationship and divorced from pastoral care. And so to stand before you today as your pastor and being able to look into each of your faces as well as I can see through the blinding lights and to not just imagine you sitting here but to actually see you sitting here as we open the word together, this is a significant act of pastoral ministry and care. But what if David or myself couldn't actually be here? What if... You know, I got stuck in Sydney. I'd been visiting family and suddenly lockdown restrictions changed and, and I couldn't be here. What if David and I were in prison? Which sounds pretty outlandish, um, especially for me who's such a goody two-shoes. But, um, <laughs> uh, somebody said something. Oh yeah, da David, we could imagine it. That's right. <laughs> It does sound outlandish, but as our religious freedoms increasingly shrink, ultimately it's, it's probably not that unlikely in big picture. So what if we were in prison? What if because of the unpopular gospel message that we were preaching, 
you know, that the Wodonga Council and the local police actually banned us from being able to meet with you. And we had to stay in Albury or, you know, in Melbourne or, or somewhere away and separated from you. In kind of the opposite of what the various lockdowns have done, what if the church could gather, but its pastors who know and love the people were unable to be with them? Well, this is the situation that the Apostle Paul and his companions, Silas and Timothy, found themselves in. Unlike us today, they couldn't just Zoom or FaceTime their sermon in. They couldn't even pre-record it and send it on a DVD for the church to watch. All they could do was, was send messengers and letters. And that's what we're looking at now as, as we start, as David said, uh, a series looking at the letters of 1 and 2 Thessalonians, which are some of the earliest written documents uh, of the early church. Now, earlier this year, we, uh, worked through, as we worked through the book of Acts, we heard the story of the start of the church in Thessalonica, uh, and it was in Acts chapter 17. I preached that day, and I was a bit unwell, and every time I had to say Thessalonica, you know, my tongue stuck to the top of my mouth, and I stumbled, and you know, it just didn't come out well, so hopefully I can do it better today. But having said that, I burnt my tongue severely yesterday, <laughs> so we'll see how we go. Uh, but let, let's recap what happened there uh, from that time that we saw in Acts 17. So Paul was on his second missionary journey. He'd been commissioned by the church to go out and, and to spread the gospel message wherever he went. And he was trying unsuccessfully to get into various areas. He, he tried here and the Spirit blocked him. He tried there and the Spirit blocked him. Until then, he heard this call to go to Macedonia. And so he, along with Silas and Timothy, headed across there. And they started in Philippi and they established a church there before Paul and Silas found themselves arrested and beaten. And after they were released, uh, they were begged to leave the city. And so from there, they went to Thessalonica. And this was, this was a major city. This was the, the capital of Macedonia. And it was located on trade routes. And so people, it was a city that had people from everywhere and people going everywhere. And this was Paul's custom. He, he started his mission in the Jewish synagogue, trying to persuade the Jews, trying to persuade his own people from the scriptures that they had, that Jesus was the Messiah that they were hoping for, that he was the fulfillment of, of God's promises to them. And some were convinced, as well as a number of God-fearing Greeks who, and Gentiles who had been there listening. And there's this sense from Paul and his letters, uh, sorry, there's this sense from, from the letters here uh, and Paul's refusal to be dependent on the Christians there that, that these converts were perhaps from the poorer, lower class sections of the city. But be that as it may be, the, the Jews in general were jealous of the response that Paul was getting. And so they attacked the home of Jason presumably looking for Paul and his companions. Uh, presumably they'd been staying there, but they were out at that time. But they attacked Jason, grabbed him, and dragged him before the city officials. And the accusation that was laid against them was that these men, referring now about Paul and Silas and Timothy, these men have caused trouble all over the world and have now come here. And Jason, how dare he, has welcomed them into his house. And they are all defying Caesar's decrees saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. 
And as a result of, of this, uh, Jason and the others had to pay a bond, which was their commitment to keep the peace in the city. And so as a result of, of this, uh, Paul, Timothy and Silas left Thessalonica and went on to Berea. However, the trouble followed them even there. Uh, the Jews, not just content to have stirred, kicked them out of Thessalonica, Thessalonica, however, whatever, burnt tongue, remember, real good, um, not content to kick them out of there, they followed them to Berea to then stir up trouble against them there. And so the result was that Paul moved on, first to Athens and then on to Corinth, while Timothy and Silas stayed and continued to work a little bit longer before they then caught up with Paul again. So here are Paul, Silas and Timothy, church planters and pastors really of this fledgling community of Christians in Thessalonica. But they're unable to be there. They've been in prison. They've been banned from going back. They're, they're in another place and unable to gather with this church, with these people who they know and who they love. They want to be there. And we see their longing for this throughout the, the letters. They want to be there and they are concerned for this church. I mean, are they okay? I mean, this was only a new community. So are, are, they, are they continuing in their faith? Is there even still a church there? They knew that the they knew the opposition of the Jews would be against them. Uh, and then there's just all the cultural and social pressures that would be against them living this different kind of life as a Christ follower. And so at some point, they send Timothy back. Maybe because he was the youngest, maybe he was uh, you know, um, less prominent on the team, so maybe he, was, he would be okay to go back. But they send Timothy back to check in on them, to strengthen and encourage them in their faith. And upon then his return to Corinth, having gone and visited and then come back to join with the team again in Corinth, collectively the three of them sit down to write the first of these letters to the church. They pastor as they can from a distance, these people who they know and love and care for. So let's look at it in 1 Thessalonians. We're just going to look at just the first verse and it says this. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. That's all we're going to look at for today before we get into more of the substance of the letter next week. But this that we have here, this is a traditional opening for a letter from ancient times. Um, unlike us who, who might you know, start with the date uh, and, and such, but, but then it, the letter really starts with who we're addressing it to uh, and we sign our name then at the end of it. In, in ancient times, it, the letter form would start with who the letter was from and then it would go on to, to say who it's to and then give a pretty basic greeting or, or, or blessing. You know. But for all of that's pretty basic, there's actually still significant stuff for us to, to reflect upon here. We've already considered the senders. We've already considered you know, Paul and Timothy and Silas, the, the ones who had planted this church. So let's move on to the second line to consider who this letter was addressed to. We see that it is addressed to the church. And in Greek, the, the word church is this word ecclesia. And it means simply assembly or, or gathering. It, it wasn't 
a religious term. It was actually a very common term, and it referred to a gathering of citizens, usually for, for the purpose of governance or, or some kind of decision-making in that regard. However, Paul and the early Christians kind of appropriated this word as a description of their own gatherings. So that's why I opened this morning by, by saying how good it is to, for us to be able to gather again together. Because in a very real sense, it is this gathering that constitutes the church. You know, but by definition, when we are individual Christians living out our own lives wherever we are, we're, we're not the church. We belong to a church, but we are really only the church when we assemble. That's what the word means, to assemble and to gather. And so we, by definition, are only the church when we are together in this way. And I feel like I, I bang on about this all the time. But I would ask you, in what way can you call yourself a part of the church if you actually don't assemble with it? Now, I understand COVID ha has wreaked havoc on, on our gathering, and we've done the best that we can through that. And there are legitimate reasons, you know, health-wise or whatever else, what, that keeps you apart and, and separate. But leaving COVID aside, all things being equal, there is a priority and even a necessity to gather as the church. Uh, I think of guys like Greg Stanley as, as one of our elders, uh, and I think the Worth family were another one. I think they're great examples of this. When, when their kids were younger, you know, for, for Greg, their kids, his kids played soccer on Sundays. And I know from talking with him at the time that Greg was, Greg was committed to his kids doing the, their sport. They, they enjoyed it, they were good at it, and he wanted to support and encourage them in that. But there was a condition. They could do their soccer on a Sunday morning on the basis that they then came to church at night. Church was a priority. And if they could not gather together, if they could not church in the mornings, then they had to church at night. They had to gather and assemble with the other Christians then at that time. So this letter is written to the church. It's written to the assembly or gathering of Christians, in, uh, of gathering of citizens of Thessalonica. And so... I think at the outset, we see then this priority and this need to gather and assemble together. But as we've said, ecclesia, assembly, was not a specifically religious term. It's become it as we think about church these days, but in that time, it wasn't. There would be lots of ecclesias of the Thessalonians. There were the, you know, toga-wearing ecclesia, which was probably all of them, maybe, I don't know. And there was the, I don't know, table tennis ecclesia, and there was the, this ecclesia and that ecclesia. So there were lots of ecclesias of the Thessalonians. And so Paul goes on to qualify the term. And so he writes this letter to the ecclesia, to the assembly, the church of the Thessalonians, and specifically the gathering who are in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And now this is what sets this ecclesia apart. The, the New Living Translation phrases it as, you who belong to God. The church is, ga is a gathering of people who come together in and because of God and of Christ. The church then belongs to God in that it is made up of His chosen people. 
The church gathers in the presence of God. The church exists because of God and His action to bring it into being. The church lives in, in a common union with God and therefore with each other, which is why throughout the letter Paul refers so often to the brothers and sisters, to the family, because of this common unity that we have together because of our union with God. The church recognizes Christ as Lord, as the King over our lives together. And remember, this was the accusation against Paul and his companions when they were first in Thessalonica, that they were declaring that there is another king, a king other than Caesar. This king's name is Jesus. And the church lives its life in allegiance to him and lives under his rule and authority. So as such, the church exists as an alternative society within and parallel to the society around us. Because we are citizens of another country, we have a different ruler over us. And so we live in this world and we coexist alongside this world, but in one sense we are an alternative people, an alternative society within it. And so these things shape the church and set it apart from any other gathering in the city. And these same things shape us as a gathering within our city. See, being a Christian and being part of a church is not just about having a different social circle, or it's not just about meeting in a different venue for various activities. Being a Christian and being part of a church, the church in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, this shapes our very identity. And from that, it then directs our lifestyle. We are the church of God, who, as a loving Father, has adopted us into His own family. And we're the church of Jesus Christ, who we look to not only as our Saviour, but as our Lord, as our King, as the Master who would direct our lives. And all this is true of us as individuals. But this letter, along with most of the others written in the New Testament, is not written to just scattered individuals. It's written to a gathered community. It's written to the church. So our life together is lived in God and in Jesus. And that then needs to shape what our life together looks like. And so then Paul then adds his blessing to this particular gathered assembly and he says to them, grace and peace to you. Grace and peace. I mean, in these two words is the essence of the gospel. In these two words is the essence of the good news that Paul was proclaiming. See, grace is the saving work of God that through Jesus that, that has then brought the church into being. It's by God's grace to us that we are saved from our sin, that we're brought out of the kingdom of darkness and brought into his kingdom, into his family. More than that, though, see, Paul writes grace to you. And if he was just talking about a saving grace, then this is something that they've already received. It's not a blessing to kind of bestow on them as they continue in their life. So grace is all that saving action of God, undeniably. But grace is also something more. After saving us by grace, God continues to grace us. He continues to pour out His grace upon us to enable us to live as His people and to do His will. Paul would write to the Philippian Christians to say that God is at work in us both to desire and to, and to actually do His will. 
That is God's grace at work. And Paul's blessing here is that the church will continue to know and experience this grace and its ongoing effect in their lives. So grace to you and peace. Again, we see the gospel in this word. Because of God's saving action for us, we have peace with God. We who were once enemies of Him, opposed to Him, far from Him, have been reconciled through Christ. And we now have peace with God. There's no longer enmity between us, but instead we've been reconciled through Christ's death on our behalf. And again, this is something the church already has. We already have peace with God. So, so this blessing seeks to both remind the church of it and to pray that they will increasingly walk in the fullness and the experience of it. So the Hebrew word translated peace is shalom. And we heard it in the video from Cambodia. Shalom then carries with it ideas of wholeness and rightness and fullness. It's the different kind of life that is available to us in the kingdom of God. And so Paul's prayer is that they would know the shalom of life as God intends it. They would know the fullness of life that Jesus came to bring them. When I think about the last letter that I wrote, um, which is less and less common these days, isn't it? But if I think about the last letter that I wrote, I'm pretty sure it was a reference for someone. So it was just addressed to, to whom it may concern. I didn't know who it was going to. It could have been going to multiple places and, and multiple people. Uh, and, and so it was functional. There was no warmth, there was no personality, but it was just to whom it may concern, and then bam, into the, into the meat of it. But what we see in Paul's greeting to the Thessalonians, we see a much uh, richer, a much more significant greeting that actually comes from his relationship with them and his concern for them. He knows that they are living out their new faith in an environment that was so opposed and so counter, even antagonistically so, to following Jesus. And so he reminds them of who and whose they are, praying that they would ongoingly experience God's grace and peace as they try to follow Jesus together. This letter, written to a church almost 2,000 years ago, though, to a specific church in Thessalonica, it's been saved for us. And it exists now to us as part of God's revelation of himself and of his word to us today. So we could read these opening words as if they were written and addressed to us. Paul, Silas and Timothy, church planters and pastors who care deeply for a people that they are separated from and, and unable to visit to the gathered community in Wodonga, to those who belong to God and who together call him Father and who follow and submit to King Jesus, doing so in a society and a culture that is opposed to such faith. May you know and experience the reality of the gospel, God's grace to save and His grace to continue to empower you to live according to His will. And the, and the peace 
of having a relationship with God and the ability now to live in the fullness of life that He has made possible for you. This is God's word to us. This is God's words to us as together we live out our faith in Jesus in an environment that is antagonistic to it. May we be encouraged and equipped through our time together today, but ongoingly and as we continue through these letters over the coming weeks. Let's pray together, church. God, we want to thank you that we are able to be here, gathered together in your name today. We thank you that this church exists, that through your love, your grace, your saving action, that you have called each of us as individuals to come to know you. And in doing that, God, you've then called us together into your family and to be your assembly, your ecclesia in this place and in this way. We thank you then, God, that we don't have to try to live out our faith on our own. God, in a, in a world that is increasingly hostile, where there is um, all sorts of antagonism against following Christ, that we don't have to just try to you know, just be strong in ourselves and knuckle under and do the best we can, but we get to do that together alongside brothers and sisters who love us and care for us, who, who encourage and support us, who pray for us and, and come alongside us in all sorts of ways. We thank you for the blessing of doing our faith together with others. And may we not, um, I don't know, not discount that, not, not uh, disregard that, but instead value it and prioritize it, that we would gather together with your people to bless them and ourselves to, to receive that blessing as well. And God, may we go... Uh, in our life together, and as we then separate and scatter, may we go with your grace and your peace. May we go out of the, the joy and the certainty and the security of who we are in you and of your, the wonders of the gospel that has worked so powerfully in us to save us and to reconcile us to you. And your grace and peace that continue with us, not just at that moment of salvation and then we're on our own, but you continue to be with us, to lead us and guide us and to empower us to live in the fullness of life that you have made available. God, may we experience that more and more, especially in our life together. May your word encourage us. May your word stir us and move us. May your word change us and um, transform us. May your word, word uh, warn and correct us where it needs, it, needs to and may it build us up and bless us uh, in those places as well. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.